My name is Alex Mondo, and uh, I'm a co-founder of The Collective Seattle. I'm thrilled to have you all here. This is why we built this place, uh, people coming together around shared passions. So uh, we are super excited to be partnering with KUOW and Transom tonight to be providing, hopefully, an educational and exploratory adventure in ideas and sound. Um, if you want to come back and explore the other parts of The Collective, at another date, um, please do. We have rock climbing, uh, campfire circle, artist in residence program, full bar and restaurant. We had hoped to do this event downstairs and then too many of you wanted to come. So blame everybody around you. Uh, no. um, so pop down by the bar after the show if you'd like to grab a drink. Uh, and with that, I'll say, Rob, here you go. Thank you. Hi, everyone. How are you? My name's Rob. Uh, Alex, thanks for having us. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so I'm hoping you can help me out with something. It's Saturday night. We're in the city. You've come to sit in a room and listen to radio stories? <laughs> I mean, is that what's happening? Is that why you're, why you're here? So we're just going to, like, there's, I mean, there'll be some pictures on the wall, but there's really nothing to look at. You're ready to sit for an hour and a half and just listen to radio stories on your Saturday night. What a bunch of nerds. <laughs> radio nerds, the best kind of radio nerds. Is this a radio town? Is that what the dealio is? Is that why you're here? Yes. Yeah, okay. Well, um, we have 10 stories for you tonight produced by 10 students many of whom have never made a radio story before in their lives. Some have been making a few and dabbling in that sort of thing. And so you will probably hear some pieces where, or some moments in stories where it's a little bumpy. Maybe you'll hear a cut that wasn't, that wasn't like a little too tight or the mix of some sound, like it'll be a little too loud behind what someone's saying. Um, or there'll be a pause where maybe there shouldn't be because these were just made in a week. But I actually think that those will be nominal in comparison to how really good the stories are. Like, you're gonna be surprised. My hunch is you're gonna say, why isn't that on the radio? But keep in mind, it was just produced in a week by someone who actually may not have done any radio before. You're gonna hear good writing, you're gonna hear good voicing, you're gonna hear well-recorded sound. Sometimes you might not hear well-recorded sound, but it's okay, just forgive them, because uh, uh, they came here to learn it. You're going to hear solid stories. You're going to hear, well, instead of me talking about them, why don't we, why don't we listen to one? I have many things to tell you about, many people to thank, what the hell is a transom, who I am, what the workshop does, tons of things, but we should just start listening to stories. And Michelle, if you wouldn't mind joining me up here. Michelle is one of the students in the workshop. I have a microphone for you. We'll stand first. Okay. Mm -hmm. We've not rehearsed this, so we don't really know what we're doing. Um, hi, how are hi, you? Hi, I'm okay. Could you introduce nervous. yourself? I'm Michelle Martin and I live in Seattle. What do you do here? I do a little freelance, mostly print. I've dabbled in radio, just dabbled, and I learned a ton this week. I'm also a massage therapist, part-time. Hint, hint. Yeah. <laughs> uh, why would you want to take the workshop? Um, I wanted to learn how to do this. I've dabbled, but no one's taught me anything, so. I so you just to... jumped into the deep end, making stuff on your own? And was there one thing in particular that you came to come, that you were looking to come to understand this week? 
Um, just a little more technique, houses put together, what makes a good story. And I liked what you said, if it sounds good, it is good. Oh, yeah. That's Duke Ellington, by the way. I stole that from Duke okay. Ellington. So. Is there anything we need to listen, uh, know about your story before we listen to it? I don't think so. Okay. I hope not. Great. Because I wouldn't be there to introduce it. <laughs> it's great. Let's take a listen. I, don't, I work in radio. We don't do pictures. There's, a, there's an old joke in radio, we don't need no stinking pictures. So this is going to be a little bumpy as I move from picture to audio and that sort of thing, because I'm just used to pressing play. So I hope you'll bear with me. Judy Tweet was stumped. Judy is an atmospheric scientist at the University of Washington. And some years ago, she was teaching a climate science class. She was throwing a lot of numbers at her students. Which is this long, continuous record of carbon dioxide satellite records that show um, the rise of temperature. So satellite records of the sea ice in the Arctic Ocean. And even though they could toss back some of those numbers, it wasn't resonating. What she really wanted to do was load them up with all this good information on what's going on in the world so that they could go out and talk about it. But it was having the opposite effect. All those statistics were numbing. There's so many graphs. There's so many data sets. And we look at one after another after another. And it's hard to kind of tell them apart after a while. It's like some go up, some go down, some go up and down. So there were moments when I said, I really wanted to be able to like somehow say, this one's really important. She felt like she wasn't reaching them, but she really wanted to. Because for Judy, this was much bigger than grades. In some ways, it was about the future of the planet. She wanted to know how to spark their curiosity and how to captivate them. If even after 10 weeks, people are too nervous about their grasp of the evidence to sort of have a conversation about it, well, that's a problem. She had this idea she had wanted to try for a long time. If the facts became sound, people might listen. So one Saturday morning, I was in the midst of writing my thesis. And you know that's a great time to like find other distractions when you're supposed to be writing your thesis. She took a graph of the Keeling curve. It shows the level of carbon, of CO2, in the atmosphere starting in 1958. The diagonal line moves up from left to right. Carbon goes up. But the graph, like all graphs, is static. It doesn't change. And Judy set out to give this experience of change over time with music. She took each month's carbon level and mapped it to a note. She didn't really know what she was doing, but after about five hours, she emerged with her first piece. You can hear the carbon increasing over time. That was the start of this. You know, I had no idea um, where it was gonna go. Her advisor liked it, her students perked up, they were intrigued, and they were talking about it. And then Judy got a surprise. She enrolled in a class on digital sound design. Another student in the class heard a piece of hers. Now this was a guy who often seemed distracted, and he raised his hand from the back corner and said, that made me feel more concerned about climate change. And I thought, great, right? Like. If this is reaching somebody out of context, where it's not supposed to be a discussion about the science, um, but it is having that effect, that's exactly the goal, right? To raise interest, to raise curiosity, to raise concern. She made other pieces. This one sonifies Earth's temperature starting in 1880. 
And then, skipping ahead to the present, the notes have risen with the temperature. Another song takes on melting Arctic sea ice. Each note is the amount of ice in a month. And then in the end, the notes go lower because there's less ice. TEDx Seattle asked her to come and compose a piece for the 2018 event. She said yes, then she panicked. But then she had an idea for the piano piece as performance. So here's what she did. Picture the piano keys. They correspond to the amount of ice. The pianist's left hand is what we'd expect the Arctic sea ice levels to be. It's basically the seasonal average. So the right hand plays high notes for times when there was more than average ice for the season. And as time passes, the climate warms. The ice melts and the right hand crosses over the left. Now the pianist actually plays the last third of the song with her hands crossed because there is so little sea ice. It looks uncomfortable for the pianist, and it's uncomfortable for the audience. The message is that the Arctic sea ice is melting, and it's not coming back. I first met with the pianist to show her the score and got to see her play it and see her hands, you know, embodying mm. this change in sea ice from the satellite record um, was really moving for me. It turns out the music she made to resonate with the students, to awaken them to the reality of climate change, resonated with her too. She says the sooner we act, the better off we'll be. But the outlook is still not good. I think about it sometimes the way doctors might have to think about and grapple with um, talking with patients who have a terminal illness, right? Um, how do you live fully in that situation in which you know you have to make difficult choices and there's gonna, people are going to face loss and, um, and, and, and so much sort of catastrophic change. And here we go, we're going into this and we're, you know, we're working hard to inform people so that we can adapt and shift and make hard decisions about how to, um, uh, how to live with this knowledge of, of rapid climate change. For the Transom Traveling Workshop in Seattle, I'm Michelle Martin. Um, we, we can take a couple of questions. Do you have any questions about the story and how she made it? How Michelle made it? And can so you she, repeat the question? Okay, great. Um, she's wondering if I had a connection to the story, and not really. I wanted to do, uh, well, I thought I wanted to do something on climate change, and I asked a friend who's a professor at UW, and he suggested I talk to her. Anything else? I have a question. Oh, I see a question here. Why did I pick that subject? Um, it's important to me. It's a subject that I think um, 
needs to be. I feel like we need to talk about it more when there aren't disasters, just on a normal January day. Your voice is just so present. You don't sound like you're reading, you just sound like you're having a conversation with people. How did you accomplish that? You're welcome. <laughs> I don't know, thank you. Yeah. I was reading, um, I did several, I, took, I tried several times, so I'm glad it sounded that good. Thank you. Thanks. Awesome. Sam? Um, I should tell you just quickly who I am, just for a half second. Uh, I'm Rob, like I said earlier. And I make radio documentaries. I produce podcasts, multimedia. I do multimedia work. Uh, I usually do the sound. I've done public service announcements, audio tours. Like if there's, if there's a need for a microphone, I've, I've tried to stick it in the way of things and record things. That's what I do. But actually, mostly I teach. I teach people how to make radio. I teach a nine-week workshop on Cape Cod. That's where I live. Uh, twice a year, and I teach a one-week workshop around the country, and I'll tell you more about those things, but I thought I'd just tell you a little bit about who the hell I am, and who is this guy running the show, and who are you? Uh, I'm Sam Leeds. Tell us more. Um, Which is an interview question, <laughs> and you can throw people like, tell me more. Just leave it wide open. Um, yeah. yeah, I uh, work in uh, PR. Um, I do media relations mostly, um, but I'm trying to get our agency to do more podcast work for our clients, um, and then I've just sort of as a hobby, been making radio stories on the side, um, totally self-taught, so, yeah. What, uh, what was the takeaway from this week? Um, that, like, when you have a lot of tape, um, there's actually a system for dealing with that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've done interviews where I just have, like, a lot, like, hours of tape, and I have no idea how to start making a story out of it, and this was really, really helpful for figuring out how to do that. Excellent, great. Yeah. What do you want to say about your story before we listen? Um, I don't know, I, I guess like Michelle said, I, I just let people listen to it, yeah. Great, let's yeah. do it. <laughs> At 3rd and James in Pioneer Square, there's a tiny storefront. Blink and you would miss it, except it's painted mustard yellow. Oh, and there's a bearded lady on the metal sign above the door. Tourists stop to take pictures of it. If they're lucky, they'll think to look inside. Because on the wall, there's a mural. In it, there are floating cogs and bits of machinery. And in the center, there's another bearded lady. She goes from floor to ceiling. She's got purple skin and blue-black curly hair, and she radiates gold light. I have clients that come in that are like, is that you? <laughs> and I'm like, no, that's not me. It's a little narcissistic. I don't need to stare at myself all day. That's Kelly Wembley Den, and this is her barbershop. It's called Andro, like androgynous. Today, she's cutting her friend Sophia's hair. Sophia is a fellow barber, and they cut each other's hair almost every week. So basically, I just start with uh, like a guideline for where I'm going to take hair away. Andro's a little different from your typical barber shop. I started hearing the stories about how there are no safe spaces for queer people or women in barber shops. And, uh, then I said to myself, I was like, maybe I'll just get a license and create a space. Kelly's been a lot of things over the years. When she lived in Philly, she was a correctional officer at a maximum security prison. Then she moved to Seattle and became a custom framer. She just started looking for barbering schools when she got fired. 
But it was all like divine timing for sure. I wasn't upset. I was kind of excited because I'm all about like, what's next? And it was this. Kelly was ready. She'd started training. She had a mentor. She even had a five-year plan to make Andro a reality. But things moved a lot faster than that. A year into her plan, her mentor offered her a shop space. I was like, no, no, I don't want this space. You know, because it didn't fit into my timeline. I had to reframe my train of thought, right? And then remember that it wasn't about me and then proceed. So I said yes and no about four times to owning this space. It's like the shorter it goes, the sooner you need it cut because you want it to look clean, which is why we are in each other's chairs once a week. Traditional barbershops tend to be male dominated. Kelly knows. She's gone to barbershops with her brother. Yeah, they would talk about things that was just like, what? Like, like this is a public space, you know what I mean? Like, what I assume locker room talk might be. Kelly's clients have told her all kinds of stories about barbershops. They've told her about going in for a shortcut and being asked if their husbands were okay with it. They've told her about being hit on or feeling unsafe. Some of them avoided barbershops entirely until Andrew. Some people come in and I can see that they, like the relief on their faces that it's me, whether it be because I'm black or I'm a woman or I'm queer, like one of those things are gonna resonate and that's what they're just like, oh, this is gonna be a great experience. So this haircut is almost done already because these are like butter. <laughs> Kelly doesn't advertise. She says she doesn't need to. People talk. She doesn't even take walk-ins. It's by appointment only. Most days, it's just her and the client in the shop. She says keeping it one-on-one -on -one gives people the space to open up. Like this one client, a trans guy. He was telling me that all his life, like coming into my chair was the first time he'd ever had a haircut. And I was just like, what do you mean? You know, like, <laughs> like, since you moved to Seattle? And they were like, no, like, ever. And I said, so what did you do, like, all your life? And they were like, I just grew locks. And I almost cried, like, I'm almost tearing up now because it's like, this is something that's so, so simple, but there are people who have never been comfortable. It seems like the shop holds, like, a little bit of magic for you too, because like staying in here every day and seeing this bearded woman on the wall yeah. and being like, oh, mm -hmm. maybe I can explore that for myself. Yeah, know? it does. Because the parts of me, the cogs and the wheels, that's me, like that's me. My brain doesn't stop and not necessarily in a creative way, right? Like it just doesn't stop. I'm always thinking. But then the bearded lady, like I'm so attracted to it. As she talks, Kelly reaches out and touches the bearded lady on the wall. Then she runs her hand over her own short beard, coming in along her chin and jawline. So right now, I'm growing this little beard out. First time I've ever done this. But then I just started embracing it and thinking to myself, like, what if I did grow this beard out? Because it started growing when I was like 15. And uh, it was one of those things like, I'm attracted to bearded ladies. I'm attracted to androgyny, period. And then, yeah. And then now, here we are. Cool. And she's all set. Yeah. Thank you. You're Thank welcome. You. That's it. All right. How do you feel? I feel fantastic.
fantastic. It's really great. Awesome. The day after Kelly and I talked, she posted on Instagram, a proud selfie. She's been recognized as a standout entrepreneur in Seattle and decided to grow her beard out for the photo shoot. In the post she wrote, she's done with electrolysis and laser. She's done with beauty being pain. Her beard represents Andro and she's not cutting it off until it's finished growing. She wrote, I wanna see what it do. For KUOW and the Transom Traveling Workshop in Seattle, I'm Sam Leeds. It's good, right? Get that on the radio. Uh, do you have any questions for Sam? Oh, come now. A bunch of radio nerds like y'all. I didn't, but um, she's like right down the street from where I work, so I'll probably start going to her. <laughs> um, that's a good question. She asked what was unexpected. Um, I actually didn't know that Kelly uh, could grow a beard herself. Um, so I just was like, oh, I want to do this story about this cool barbershop that's a safe space for queer folks and women and people of color. Um, but then I went in, and she had this sort of like short beard coming in, and I was like, mm, I don't really want to say anything because that's her business, and I'm here to do this story about like her literal business. Um, <laughs> but um, she brought it up to me, and we just kind of started talking about it, and it was amazing to me because it was sort of like this space that she'd created for other people to feel safe. She'd ended up feeling safe in herself. Um, and I thought that was really beautiful. Yeah. Thanks very much. Where's Molly? Molly's next. Uh, so the assignment for the students uh, for the week was to uh, produce a profile on somebody interesting. That was the bar. <laughs> uh, but the thing that makes them interesting has to make a sound, because it's radio. That was the other bar. And then hopefully within that, there's the story that's related to the sound somehow. Um, and I just want to say this about that. We could have made it a whole heck of a lot easier. Uh, on public radio, there's a lot of stories that we hear that are acts and tracks stories. Acts is A-C-T-S for actualities, and tracks is the narration. Uh, people say, I'm going to go in and track my story. Feel like it's some sort of <laughs> some sort of leftover from a Fleetwood Mac session in the 1970s or something. But people, it's an action track story is narration and quote, narration and quote, narration and quote, narration. And you've heard those stories before. And public radio does them very well, and they're very efficient. They're, they're, it's, it's a great way to pack information and deliver it to people. But sonically, eh, you know, uh, it doesn't really use the medium to its fullest. So we could have asked students to make an action tracks piece, right? And it would have been simpler. It would have been hard, but it would have been simpler to do. But I also think it would have been kind of boring. Like, I worked in one training program for a weekend or something that was run by Prindy, the Public Radio News Directors Incorporated, I think. And what they did, which was smart, was they uh, sort of, they brought in, a, they brought in a, a, someone to perform like a mayor. And they had a faux press conference. And everybody had to gather around and ask questions of the fake mayor. I mean, they had some facts that they knew about the story that they were supposed to report. And so then they had to make like a minute and a half or two minute piece out of that. And that's really hard to do, and it's great skill building. But sonically, right, putting the medium to its fullest use, eh, 
Not so much. It doesn't tickle the ear. It doesn't make you look at your radio and go, oh, that's interesting. How did they do that? And so for the workshop, uh, we said your stories have to have sound in them. In other words, we just threw people into the deep end. Like, here you go. You know, swim, please. Uh, and I think they totally rose to the occasion. Like that barbershop piece, it's really hard to record in a barbershop. You'd think it'd be easy, but the barber's moving their hands around someone's head, and you're trying to get your mic in there in order to record it well, and they buzz, the bu like that buzz. Like we had to do a lot of work on the buzz uh, in order to make it so we could still hear what was going on. Like it's a real pain in the tuchus to record in a, in a barbershop, trust me. Uh, and the same thing holds true for some of the other pieces that you're going to hear. There's one that's set in a, well, you know what I'm going to tell you, you'll find out. Um, so I just wanted to congratulate the students for swimming in the deep end and making stories that are really sound rich, because uh, we could have made it easier, but why, that would have been boring, right? Who are you? Um, I'm Molly Smith, and I'm a print reporter in McAllen, Texas, which is based on the U.S.-Mexico border. Why would a print reporter want to take a radio workshop? You knew that question was coming. You just sort of nodded. Like, I had to come up with new questions. I wanted to think of new ways of presenting material online, so uh, using sound within my stories, using interviews. And what I wasn't really expecting was that I oftentimes think in color when I'm writing. When I'm thinking of a person, I, I look for color, you know, of all these details, but I never look for sound. And moving forward, I think I'll start when I'm interviewing somewhere, I'm in a space thinking more with my ears and maybe looking a little less and trying to add the sound I hear into the written word to just give audiences a, another picture. There's, that, there's an old journalistic phrase, report with all your senses. Mm -hmm. It sounds like we woke up your ears maybe this week. Yes. Yeah, that's great. Uh, do you want to introduce your story or should we just play it? I don't think so. Just play. Let's do it. When Daniel Swanson tells people what he does for work, some aren't too sure what he means when he says cobbler. I think the word's been lost a little bit. So, so it, there's oftentimes a pause, and then they go, oh, like a, sh like a shoe person. You make shoes? And I say, no, 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 I fix them. Of course he also fixes his own shoes. Take his Converse All-Stars. Despite being beaten to heck, as he puts it, they're one of two pairs of shoes he wears daily. His last pair, which he repaired a dozen times, lasted nine years. Most people, when they look at what I wear, can't tell what I do for a living. Because um, I Frankenstein my shoes. I don't really care how my footwear looks. I just want it to function. Daniel's 26, and he's wearing an apron covered in shoe polish. He's standing in front of what looks like an industrial vintage sewing machine on legs. And he's using it to attach a new sole to a worn leather boot. Um, it, it kind of feels like a third appendage at this point. I can be thinking about kind of whatever I want while I'm working on those machines. Wasn't always the case, but definitely is now. Daniel grew up around these machines. Swanson's Shoe Repair, the shop where he works, was started by his great-grandfather in 1928. Then his grandfather worked there, and now his dad does. But there was never an expectation Daniel would follow in their footsteps. And he had other plans. He was studying human physiology and wanted to be a professor. I was there because I liked science and because I was good at science. But he started to question what he was doing. He had a gut feeling his purpose was elsewhere. At the same time, I was traveling back to Seattle almost every weekend to work at my dad's, the shoe repair shop, and you know, saw him and my aunt dedicating 50 to 60 hours of their weeks 
working to fix things for other people. They like choose to do it because what they do helps people out and does good for their community and for the earth. Daniel began to see the value of the shop. At that point, it was an easy choice to make, was to return home, to pick up the hammer, and do what my family has done for generations. Swanson Sugar Bear. Daniel has worked full-time at Swanson's for the last three years. He works alongside his dad, Danny, and Aunt Patty, and four part-time employees. There's lots to do. 50 shoes are dropped off daily. Uh, And it's not just shoes. There's bags and other leather goods, other textile stuff. We get baseball gloves, belts. 30 years ago, there were 40 shoe repair shops in Seattle. Now, about a dozen. At Swanson's, they work 50-hour weeks just to keep up with demand. Danny says one reason they stayed in business is because Daniel's grandfather bought their building in Wallingford in 1946. Um, I don't know if a shoe repair shop can sustain itself in this neighborhood with the rents the way they are. But I, I think I give most credit to our, our customers. Um, they keep coming back no matter where they live. If they move out of the neighborhood, out of the state, out of the country, they still bring their work back. So we got that going for us. I met one of the regulars as he dropped off a pair of boots to be waterproofed. He's been coming to Swanson's for more than 30 years. Uh, I knew grandfather Swanson and George and now Danny and then then his son. So uh, it's just a one of a kind place in the city. I live in the Montlake, but uh, this is my place. So I'll come here no matter where I live. Swanson's has nine decades of experience, but Daniel thinks there's another reason customers keep coming. I I think the, the strong values behind the work that we do is what has kept us alive um, for as long as we have. Standing on your feet all day, covered in shoe polish and adhesives, seems like a far cry from academia. Yet Daniel finds similarities. I could have gone and got a PhD and became a professor. I think there's importance in people teaching other people information. But I get to do that in my job now. I get to teach people about how they can make conscious, intentional decisions about their footwear and teach people the merits of recycling. Sometimes I feel like the student, sometimes I feel like the teacher. So I don't, it doesn't feel like something I gave up. Yeah, if you don't mind, the, the stitch marks going farther up on the uppers. Yeah, we're going to make it as best as Right, yeah, 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 for sure. For the Transom Traveling um, Workshop yeah. in Seattle, I'm Molly Smith. Uh, any questions for Molly? Sure. Um, when I was, um, so it was a little bit of a challenge since I haven't lived, um, I'm a Seattle native, but I haven't lived here for about five years. So I kept thinking, what is something I can do where there's sound? Um, and I'd, I'd gone to Swanson's as a customer and I thought, okay, there's a lot of shoe noise, lots of sounds, this will be interesting. I'd originally thought that I was gonna profile um, Danny, but then when I realized that his son had left a graduate program to do this full time and wanted to make this his career, I thought that was a more interesting story. Yeah. Um, the question was if I think about my shoes differently. 
So I, I have brought shoes to a, a cobbler shop before to Swanson's because I grew up in that neighborhood. But I've realized there's probably shoes I've had that I've really worn and then just chucked aside that I could have tried to salvage. Um, so I think just to be a little bit more conscientious and to know that there is value in stuff and you know you have put money in it and to save it as opposed to just keep getting getting more stuff. You're a print reporter. Mm -hmm. How is writing for radio different than writing for the page? It's very different and that was something that did take me a while to get used to. Um, it, I think I have to really just, when I'm writing for radio, think about how would this sound if I said it? And does it sound like I'm having a co casual conversation, not as if I'm reading something from the page? Um, and just to really oversimplify and use short sentences. So for me, it sounds very choppy, but when I hear it, it, it sounds much smoother than a, than a really long sentence with lots of commas. Thanks. Thank you. April's next. Um, their answers are really good. They, I'm grading them on their answers, by the way. So, so they did really well. Thank you for laughing. Um, so I want to tell you who I work for. I work for a, a nonprofit called Atlantic Public Media. And the only reason you might have heard of Atlantic Public Media is because they produce the Moth Radio Hour. Uh, Moth Radio Hour. Uh, it, but I have nothing to do with it. Don't let me near it, uh, which is probably a good thing. Uh, and then Atlanta Public Media also, the, the other thing you may know of theirs that they produced was the uh, This I Believe series. Does that ring a bell from a few years ago? Essays people wrote about, you know, what they believe. Uh, and those were all edited and recorded and, you know, aired on NPR for several years. So those come through Atlanta Public Media. Um, in fact, that's uh, like one side of what Atlanta Public Media does. I'm going to give you an organizational chart on a Saturday night, uh, is to make these radio programs as well as do videos for uh, places like uh, Mass General Hospital and things like that. And then there's the educational side of Atlantic Public Media, which features a website called transom.org. That's where the transom comes from. And it's really the site on the web to go to to learn how to make radio stories. It's a super resource. I know I'm paid to say that, but I actually believe it as well. Um, and so you can go there and find out what gear to buy. There's manifestos from Ira Glass and all kinds uh, about the craft of radio making and everything in between. Uh, at transom.org, and then I teach workshops that are related to to the uh, the website. They're sort of like the bricks and mortar operation, you know, of the website to teach people directly how to make stories. So that's what that is. And April has joined me on stage. Hi, how are you? Yeah, are you doing okay? She's a little <laughs> nervous. Um, can you introduce yourself? I don't know if the mic is on. Press it and press it again and take mine. Okay. <laughs> uh, hi, I'm April Simpson and I'm a reporter in Washington, D.C. Uh, what do you do? What do you report on? Uh, I report on rural issues um, for Stateline. We're a division of few charitable trusts. What sort of issues? I say rural issues, but like, what are some of the stories, I should say? Uh, so I've done some stories on rural broadband and um, what young farmers are getting out of the farm bill. Um, I'm working on something about industrial hemp right now. Industrial, oh, industrial hemp. Uh, and so you came to the workshop to? 
Uh, to add another skill to my toolbox. Um, I mean, everything that I've done for the most part has been just text-based, but there's so many other opportunities and just different ways to tell stories, so I wanted to you know, broaden my skill set. And are you going to go back to Pew and say, this is how we need to do it? Um, not quite like that. No. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I'm definitely going to look. I get to travel, so I get, I'm going to look for opportunities to tell audio stories. Excellent. Do you want to introduce your story? Uh, no, no, nope. I'll let it go. Okay. <laughs> All right, let's listen. <laughs> Her name is Kitty McCoon Hennick, but she also goes by another name. The Deck Wench. Yes, the Deck Wench. Here's how Kitty got that name. It was 1975. Kitty was at Lake Washington. She was on board a schooner, and a man came on board. For some reason, the guy hooked a thumb at me and said, who's that? And my shipmate said, oh, that's the Deck Wench. For Kitty, deck wench is a pun on deck winch, what sailors use to haul in lines or an anchor. And that always just kind of resonated with me, the deck wench, okay. And a friend who was in marketing said, that's brilliant branding, brilliant. Kitty became deck wench on LinkedIn. She registered deckwench.com, deckwench.net. And then when I got on uh, Facebook, they would not accept my name as it is properly spelled. So I just put in Deck Wench, and I was told, oh, they're going to catch you, and they'll fix it, and it'll all be okay. Well, I don't know, seven years on, it's still Deck Wench. Kitty is not just a Deck Wench. She holds other titles, too, like Scrounge, Able-Bodied Seaman, Wife, Whistler. And he's the only man I have ever whistled at before a proper introduction. And now I've been married to him almost 40 years. Kitty is a woodworker, a mother, a trailblazer. I added that last line for a fact. And because it's true, she's made waves without thinking much of it. Kitty grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. She first visited Seattle at 16. Believe it or not, she moved here for the weather. Kitty studied history at the University of Washington, but graduated to live on a schooner, the Adventurous. She went on to attend Gompers Woodworking School. Kitty is 68 now, and throughout her life, she's always found her way to boats and sailboats, especially schooners, ships with two or more masts. Uh, everything about her, the smell, the feel of this big ship that didn't move when you stepped aboard. Unlike small boats, the big ships, you know, you step aboard and you're, it's as firm as dry land until you get out in the water and the waves. In 1977, Kitty was among the first female deckhands in federal service. Being the first of anything is a challenge, but this deck wench, she wasn't having it. Really, the biggest problem I had was sorted out fairly quickly um, with the guys wanting to open the door for me. <laughs> so we're coming up a ladder, which is a, a narrow staircase, in fact, and there's a, a watertight door at the top, and somebody is holding the door open for me, and there's a bunch of guys ahead of me, and I'm go, I went, come on, this makes no sense. Let's be efficient here. Oh, okay. And that was the end of that. This is how Kitty talks. She downplays the bad and focuses on what works. Case in point, she told me a horrific story about a man, a man her shipmates feared might threaten her physically. Uh, he was buying stuff for me when I ran the ship's store, and he was talking, I think he was buying a knife, and he was talking about, you know, thingies you would do when you were doing everything. When he got home, and, and 
I had uh, one of the cooks come up behind me and say, Kitty woman, you lock your door until we get that boy off the ship. Because he's going off. Sure enough, the man got drunk. He didn't threaten Kitty, but he did get in a violent confrontation with the doctor on board. The man had a razor blade. In a drunken rage, he ran it across the doctor's face. Kitty said it was so bad, the doctor had to get plastic surgery. Saw him months later, looked good, recovered. Um, but they got that guy off the ship, and I quit locking my door again. So Kitty is deck wench, and she's first female deckhand in federal service. Then they're scrounge. How, how do you become a scrounge? Oh, it's I think you're born as a scrounge. You see something and you go, oh, I'm going to need that someday. That's one of those things. I mean, I've, I have picked up roadkill tools and um, bales of, of hay, or straw, rather. And uh, I guess not everybody will stop at the roadside and pick up a, something that's fallen off the back of a trailer or whatever. Uh, but I will. I got to see Kitty scrounging up clothes. Kitty's wood shop is the garage attached to her home. There are two workstations, one for Kitty, the other for her husband, Doug. A shelf runs across the top of a wall. It's lined with various jars. One says, useful for something. Kitty says she digs into it three times a year, at minimum. Waste not, want not, yeah. She showed me a pile of wood that she took off a boat the other day. Somebody put on free cycle a uh, full-size bed frame, craftsman style. I will pay you $30 to get it out of my house. So I went and collected a perfect bed frame for the uh, keeper's quarters and a $30 donation for the Schooner Society. So that was a very good day. The floor is lightly coated in sawdust. She's working on building the frame for an oven that will be fitted on the schooner Lavangro. It's a restoration project Kitty is working on for the Northwest Schooner Society. What, what do you see in a piece of wood that you know, the rest of us don't see? Oh, I'm not Michelangelo. Oh, no. <laughs> this is Kitty. This is Deckwench and Scrounge. Kitty sees value in every piece of wood. The stuff that comes out of the bottom of her table saw goes into the curbside compost. That's only if it's clean. If she has a paint can where the paint is bad but hasn't completely congealed, she stuffs it full of sawdust and that hardens it up so it can go into the garbage. If she's cutting cedar or alder, that goes up to Burroughs Island for the composting toilet. It's astonishing how stink-free the, the toilet is. See, I, I see wood and you see Compost toilet? I met Kitty on a Saturday afternoon. She was doing restoration work on the schooner Lavangro in South Lake Union. The boat was full of a half dozen or so volunteers that Kitty had recruited. Kitty credits her many activities and titles to her community of almost 50 years. Her children grew up as schooner brats. My kid's ethnicity is boat. So that's a glimpse of Kitty McCoon Hennick. Scrounge, mother, wife, Irish woman, deck wench. This is April Simpson in Seattle with the Transom Traveling Workshop. Me Kim opened her small donut. 
you know those people giving you a standing ovation? Oh, okay, that's cheating. <laughs> uh, any questions for April? Over here. When I heard you laughing a lot. Um, Oh, uh, no, no. I mean, I think Kitty's, Kitty's like lighthearted and she says she has like a really interesting way of expressing herself. Um, so I didn't go into it really knowing that she would be funny and like I'm not really funny. So I, I just kind of she's tried funny. to, <laughs> well, I just tried to let her speak for herself because she's just, she's like a big character. Um, she was with uh, Noah, and she was um, the first deckhand for, female deckhand for Noah. I think in, I, I said the year in there, I think, mid-70s. Mid oh gosh, she told me. I can, um, I can look it up if you want and tell you after. Oh, okay. <laughs> me too. <laughs> Fact check in the audience. So. <laughs> yep. One more and then we'll move on. Um, she's uh, Kitty's friends with uh, friends that I have here in Seattle, and um, I was actually kind of last minute about finding my stories, so I was really happy that Kitty Kitty was available. Great, thanks so much. Erin, oh great, Erin, you're next. Um, so I didn't teach alone. I had. Uh, great, fantastic, steady, incredible, grooves on an inner plane. Does she groove on an inner plane? Doesn't she? Yeah. Uh, assistance from Whitney Henry Lester, who's in the back. Thank you very much. Radio producer, editor, worked at KOW for a while, now lives in Lima, Peru. We need you back here making more radio stories. Thank you very much for your help this week. It's been super. Oh, I should give you a mic. <clears throat> Hi. Hi, thank you. Who are you? Uh, I'm Erin Conway-Smith. Uh, I'm a journalist. I live in Johannesburg, South Africa. So you came all the way <laughs> from South Africa. I did, yeah. yeah. I'm, it's I'm uphill. From, yeah, <laughs> I'm from Canada originally. <laughs> um, <laughs> That was the Newfoundlander in the audience, yeah. <laughs> uh, what, uh, what sort of reporting do you do? Uh, I, I'm the Southern Africa correspondent for The Economist, so that's typically right about, I don't know, whatever's happening with the... The RAND? Yeah, the RAND or the African National Congress Party and, or whatever. Yeah. And so you... Or whatever. Yeah. Or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Journalism, yep. What... Uh, what were you hoping to get from coming to the workshop? Well, I often find in the course of my work that I encounter stories that I feel um, would be really good as radio pieces that have great sound, but I'm not telling them in that way. Um, and I, yeah, I wanted to learn how to do that. Cool. 
Want to introduce your story, or are we just going to play? No, it? no, let's just play it. Okay. <laughs> you want to come sit with me, or are you going to freak out gonna... and go on the side? <laughs> She's doing great, right? Somebody said when I t when we described the final night event, uh, there were three or four people in class who freaked, and they said, I, "I'm getting into a radio for a reason. We have to be in front of people." Yeah. So, I know, kind of weird, right? Well, you'd be willing to talk to hopefully thousands of people, but you just don't want to look at them. <laughs> anyway, here we go. The last time I saw DJ Eddie Liu play, it was late at night at a club in Beijing, China. Eddie was stooped over the turntables, fingers flying over knobs and switches, his headphones slung on one ear. In China, Eddie played parties on the Great Wall, a magazine named him Beijing's best DJ twice. He performed for audiences of thousands. Those days are gone. Anna, can you make some effect? Can you do some splash? Eddie is crouched on his living room floor. The turntables he's working today are attached to a toy panda on a playmat. He likes this panda. DJ Panda. <laughs> These days, he mainly plays with his daughter, Anna. She's 17 months old and has some pretty sweet dance moves. They live in Seattle. My wife, in the weekdays, she will go to the office. And uh, I am a stay-at-home dad right now. How did he get here? Can I start at the beginning? Eddie's childhood was a little unusual for China. He's the youngest of two brothers. It wasn't common for families to have two kids, especially two boys. When I was younger, I loved skateboard. I was a skater, yeah. So I have a lot of friends. We, we listen the old school hip hop music. We went to the teenager club together. So my parents bought me the first turntable. He played his first gig at 15. I was so young, scary. <laughs> Around the same time, he quit high school. Uh, everyone wearing the same clothes. Everyone has the same hairstyle. I don't like that kind of thing. I love creative things. I don't want to be uh, like a slave. <laughs> At first, you have to do this very slow and uh, practice, practice, getting faster and faster. Yeah. He got gigs, then bigger gigs. Then he met my friend Caroline, an American living in Beijing. They fell in love and got married. Beijing is a huge city, 22 million people. There's a lot of opportunity. There's also a lot of smog. Yellow or orange air, yeah, yeah. And when I opened the curtain in the morning, in the morning I couldn't see any building. Yeah, that's bad, that's very bad. That's why we left there. They decided to get away from the pollution and be closer to Caroline's family. They ended up in Seattle. In Seattle, a few great clubs here, but it closes very early. Beijing, you can party all night long. He played a few gigs after moving, but it wasn't the same. Then came Anna. She's a very lovely girl, but sometimes, you know, sometimes it's very hard. The day goes so slow. Yeah, before maybe, I, I will go to bed in the, in the 7 a.m. 
but right now I, I must get off at 6 a.m. He's had to learn English while learning how to be a father. It's not my culture, it's not my language. Everything is difficult. He chats online with a group of Chinese moms from his neighborhood. Eddie's the only dad. Before my goal is to uh, be a good DJ, but now I want to be a good dad, yeah. Eddie has a studio in the basement of his house. He doesn't use it as much as he'd like. When he has time, he posts tracks on SoundCloud. This is a long term. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I love this. And this is part of my life. When you get some good music and you share, you play this in the right time, at the right moment, it makes people happy. It's a very amazing. He might not have to wait too long to get back behind the turntables. In fact, he has an idea. In the future, I want to organize a party for babies. Yes, baby discos. I don't want to train them like kids. just want to pick the good music, the real music for them, and match some baby's music, you know, mixing them together. It can give uh, parents an uh, opportunity to take a break. For now, he'd rather be playing in the living room with Anna than DJing on the Great Wall. Yeah. For the Transom Traveling Workshop in Seattle, I'm Erin Conway Smith. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, any questions for Erin? Make her stay up here as long as possible. <laughs> a question? Uh, she works in marketing. Yeah, here. Yeah, here, here. they live here in Seattle. Other questions? Oh, oh go ahead. So you must have had a lot of recording of his music. Yeah. How, how did you trim that down? <laughs> yeah, um, I had a lot of good music to work with. Um, a little tricky, but I found that I kind of lent itself naturally to, to telling the story, just because he's always talking about music. What's something that you would do differently? If you were to go back in and do this story again, what would you do differently? Mike him closer. <laughs> um, She's going to get a good grade. <laughs> uh, I think that often my, I mean, I interview people a lot for my job, obviously, but I think the questions that I ask for a print piece, especially for you know a print piece for The Economist, are quite different than what you ask for a, sort of a profile piece for radio, where you want to get into people's motivation and the reasons why they've made certain de decisions in their life. Very different questioning, and I kind of didn't realize that. But then after putting together the piece, which I sort of followed up on certain lines of questions more. Yeah, when we talked afterwards, we talked about, well, this dude was top, he was like top of the pops, right? He was, yeah. he was you know, best DJ in Beijing, yeah. and then he comes here. So what was it like to let go of that? Yeah. What does it mean to go down to the bottom of the heap, like to explore some of those questions? That's what we talked about afterwards. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, it really is, um, you have to shift the way you think about a story and the way you think about putting together the elements of a story yeah. doing your interviews. Great. Thank you. Thanks so much. <laughs> David, you're next, sir. Uh, I want to tell you what happens during the week. Are you ready? It's going to blow your mind. 
your minds, all the students, your minds are blown, right? After the end of this week? Yeah. So we started on Sunday, and the students came with their ideas for a story. They hadn't recorded anything. Like, they just had a clean slate. They knew who the person was that they were going to do the story on, and maybe what some of the sound might be, and that's it. So Sunday, we met at 2. We did some listening. We talked about what the week was going to, uh, what was going to happen during the week. We gave out their gear. We showed them how to use the gear. They interviewed each other. And then we went and had dinner. Uh, and then Monday morning, uh, we forced them to go out on the street and interview strangers. Right? They had their gear on. They look alien. And they have to walk up to complete strangers and convince them to talk to them and get tape, right? And come back and talk about how it went. How was that for you? I didn't, I didn't do that part of it. Oh, nice. <laughs> I, I skipped class that morning. That's right, you did. Jerk. Yeah, I know I should have asked somebody else. Anyway, uh, and so after they do that and they're scarred for life, um, then they have to come back and we plan their stories. We just go around the room for a pretty long day thinking about what the questions might be and what the focus of the story is and, and what the questions might be and what the focus is like just over and over and over. Oh, and what sound might you get and what challenges collecting that sound might uh, present and if an ethical question is going to pop up, we try to address the ethical question, although I think we were pretty clean in this class. I didn't think there was anything that popped up much. Um, and then Monday's still not done. We have to introduce people to, uh, on how to set up the software that they're going to use to mix and edit the stories. And we get out at like 6, 6.30. That's Monday. People go home. They finish planning their questions. And then Tuesday morning, they're in the field. They only have Tuesday morning. That's it. All right. So they have to do their interview. They have to follow people around uh, and get sound of them doing their thing. And then they come back. Uh, we provide lunch for them. And then we start talking about how to go. What'd you learn? play a little bit of tape so we can hear the people that are in these stories. We also talk about story structure. And then how do you go through the tape? Right? If you have an hour and a half of tape, an hour of interview, and a half hour of people doing things, like how do you, how do you decide what's good? And mechanically, like how do you cut the tape? And it's still called tape, even though it's not tape. But how do you cut the tape and turn those into quotes, into the software, like all that stuff? And then Tuesday night, they have to go home and listen to all the tape and find all the good stuff, and then type out the good quest, uh, the good answers, and maybe the good questions too. Uh, it's like logging the tape. How late were you up doing that? Don't like, tell me you skipped that too. No, I I, I made the radio piece. Um, <laughs> uh, like 12, 12:30, 12 yeah. one tonight's. Yeah, yeah, and then but you were out in the morning. Yeah, yeah, that was a long day. I'm very tired, Rob. Yes, yes, I know. <laughs> hint, hint. Hurry up. Uh, and then that's Tuesday. Wednesday, uh, mixing and editing in the software. How to cut the tape, how to raise and lower the volume of things. Wednesday afternoon, writing for radio. We're going to write the beginnings of the stories in class and get a quick edit on what you've written. Wednesday night, write the scripts. Thursday morning, get an edit. Thursday afternoon, get another edit. Friday morning, come in and track the story. Record the narration. And we're still not done. Friday afternoon, it's all mixing and editing, mixing and editing. Whitney and I have headphones uh, with splitters so we can sit with people and hang out and talk to them about the software and how they're doing and maybe help out a little bit here and there. Uh, and then Friday night, they do more. Saturday morning, today, they came in. They did more. We finished class at like 2. Talked about how to export the stories. I passed around a thumb drive, got their files, and now they're on the computer, and we're playing them for you. Like, that's what we did this week. <laughs> Yeah. Thanks That's for making us relive that. 
What's that? Thanks for making us relive that whole experience. Yeah, <laughs> yeah re-traumatized. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is David Fleet. I work for the Schultz Family Foundation as a grant manager. Uh, I'm a native New Yorker, and I moved to Seattle about a year and a half ago. And you came to the workshop. Why, why come to the workshop? Why not just stay home uh, and take a nap? Someone a long time ago said I had a face, I mean a voice for radio. And uh, no, I've, I've had an interest in making radio for probably six or seven years and have sort of dabbled, dipped my toes in, got scared of the water, and retreated. So I was thinking that this would be a safe place to uh, realize the water is warm and learn how to swim a little bit. Nice. That sounded rehearsed. It's yeah, a little no. bit rehearsed. <laughs> and what do you like about radio? Uh, I think, well, I've always been into music and sound, and I think uh, I think about music as like sort of the soundtrack to your experience, and I think it cuts into a, a deep feeling that certain medium don't. So I think it's a very powerful art form. Somebody on a Radiolab episode described uh, sound as touch at a distance. I like that. Me too. <laughs> Should we listen to your story? Yeah. By the way, Susan, who is the subject of my oh, really? piece, is sitting in the audience here. So. Oh, hi. We may have questions for you afterwards. Yeah. With me? Yeah, I'm with you. Okay. Let's see. You were a light I want to avenge my mother's death. And I've been looking for the killer. This isn't where you'd picture revenge yeah. to take place. Susan and I are in the small theater in Seattle's International District. There was no staff around that morning, and we never found the house lights. So we sit in the semi-dark. So it's just one chair, and then there's also going to be a wooden frame here, and it'll be projecting some video. In two weeks, Susan will be performing her one-woman show right here on this stage. After that, my family was never the same. My dad stopped singing karaoke on Sunday mornings. My aunts and grandparents on my mom's side moved out, so we had all these rice bowls we didn't use anymore. And nobody ever talked about it. Every year on her death anniversary, we'd light incense for her, and then we'd eat in silence. The name of her show is 140 Pounds, How Beauty Killed My Mother. It's the culmination of Susan's quest to avenge her mother's death and get to know her mother and family better in the process. But her dad won't be in the audience. Susan Liu is 33 years old. We're Vietnamese boat people. We came over in 1983. Susan was the first in her family born here in the United States. Her parents opened and ran nail salons in the Bay Area. She went to Harvard, then Yale for her MBA, and then there's the artisanal chocolate company she co-founded and owns with her sister. By any measure, you could say she was doing pretty well for herself. But Susan felt the call of something else, the stage. You know, if the Mayan calendar is true and we're all gonna die, you know, what's my big regret? My big regret was not really trying performance. You know, I started as a stand-up uh, comic actually six years ago in the Bay Area. I headlined at the Purple Onion. I performed at Caroline's on Broadway. I never wanted to do a show about my mom's death. It, it, it was a story that kept finding me and there was a point where I just kind of gave in to it. Susan's mom went in for a tummy tuck, the narrowing of her nostrils, and a chin implant. She hoped to return home the next day with, as Susan says, her beautiful new body. Two hours into the operation, she lost oxygen to her brain. The human brain can go without oxygen for up to four minutes before permanent brain damage occurs. Fourteen minutes passed before the surgeon called 911. After five days in a coma, she flatlined. The surgeon was tried for negligence for failing to call 911 in a timely manner. Having my mom die when I was 11 years old, 
makes me realize how finite life is. Boom, she was dead. Boom. But her family seemed to grieve in their own way, together but alone. When my mom died, we didn't do family counseling. We didn't talk about it. We just ate food in silence. She unearthed every detail she could about what happened to her mom. She poured through court deposition files. That's where she learned the plastic surgeon responsible for her mom's death had 24 lawsuits against him. He was sanctioned by the medical board, twice. So, what was presented as an accident turned out to be a track record of harming and disfiguring women. I wanted to build a class action lawsuit against him. Then I found out he died. How do I avenge my mother's death when the killer is dead, huh? Susan started preparing her show to tell the story about her mom. She interviewed family members to find out everything she could. It didn't always go as she hoped. My dad really didn't want me to do this. He would say the line like, every time you want me to go deep, it takes me at least half a day to come back. So for my dad, it's just, it triggers a lot for him and I, I need to give him that space. He shared what he, has, he can, but in my last interview with him, he said, this is the last time. And she considered calling off the show entirely. This is truly airing your dirty laundry, and is this honorable to my mom? Like, I thought, you know, this is not okay, but it just kept coming back, it kept coming, and, you know, at one point I was like, you know, I think we should stop. And then my mom came to me, and my mom has never come to me, and she came to me one night. I came back from rehearsal, and I had trouble sleeping. It was like, I stayed up for like two hours, and then I hear her tell me, don't cover up the story. Don't cover up the story. Don't cover up the story. And it was, it was so, I had never had her talk to me. I felt like I got her blessing to do it. Do you think that the show is avenging her passing? It finally is. It finally is. I'm on this quest. And at first I thought the quest was all about the killer, but I realized this quest about, is about me knowing my mom. And I found it through the show. For the Transom Traveling Workshop at KUOW in Seattle, Washington, I'm David Fleet. Do you have any questions for David? Yeah, um, so I wasn't gonna use, use music in this, and I felt like her, I needed some, some, some sound elements to sort of give weight to the, um, to the piece. And I thought that would be a good way of sort of bringing everybody into the, um, into the space where we're working. And it was the suggestions of our lovely instructors as well, so yeah. Thank you, thanks. Other questions? Uh, well, that's interesting. The, so the question was why radio versus film for this? So I'm presenting a, I wanted to work in radio, so I'm presenting a snippet of someone and their, and their pursuit of performance, and Susan is, is doing a, a 
live and in color sort of visual medium. I don't know if that answers your question, really. For me personally? Um, so the question was, um, again, really digging into this. Um, why, for me, am I, is radio more sort of impactful and compelling, right? I don't know, I think I just think in sound often. I think I, I grew up with music and, and sound in my house, and I think um, that was the art form that sort of called to me. My sister makes film, so maybe I just wanted to be different from her. <laughs> Susan has a question, oh, and there's a question in the back, too. Should we take that one first? Sure. Yeah. How did you meet Susan, and um, how did you meet Susan and tell the story? Yeah, so um, once I got accepted to the workshop, uh, we were tasked with finding someone interesting, which sounds easier than it is. It sounded weird. Um, so I was interested in doing some... I, want, I was interested in looking into like um, immigrant experiences in the US, and sort of I talked to a couple of people who work in immigrant communities, and I talked to um, someone named Quinn Pham who said, oh, you gotta talk to Susan. She's, she's amazing and she's doing this really great piece and I think, I think she would be great for your story. So I was introduced to Susan and um, she was. So I, I wanted to do a story on her, yeah. You had a question, Susan, about, about your own story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you have a beer? Um, what I think it was going to be about. Well, I knew it was going to be about. Your, I knew we were going to talk about your mom a lot, um, but I didn't know how much we we're going to talk about. How much more than just the story of your mom it would be? I think I'll just say this. Susan has a show that will be debuting in two weeks. That's a that is a, a really large scope of her life and her story. This is a small fragment of her and her story. So I think I was surprised. I don't know. I don't know how to answer this question. I was, it's really hard to boil someone down into five minutes. Um, so I think I just had to pick a, a straight avenue for me to go down. It's called 140 Pounds, How Beauty Killed My Mother. It, yeah. <laughs> It will be at the Theater off Jackson, February 7th to February 17th. Great. Check it out. Thank you. Thank you. Rachel, you're next. Uh, oh. No, not at all, because I wanted to say something about it, too, but here, here you go. So, so the question is, what was it like to listen to it? I guess I didn't realize how crazy of a thing I'm doing. <laughs> you know? Like, it, my life is now, like, so focused on this show, and, and, I'm, and I'm deriving a lot of identity from it, and I didn't realize that until I heard about myself. Yeah, it's kind of crazy what I did. Yeah. Did 
you guys know who Studs Terkel is? Does that ring a bell to you, the oral historian? He, he recorded a woman once, and he played the tape back to her. And, uh, and she listened to it, and she goes, oh, I didn't realize I felt that way. <laughs> Until she heard the tape, yeah. Uh, is there anybody else in the room who's in one of the stories? No, just Susan? So uh, Susan and all the people who are, oh, wait. Oh, I'm sorry, who's here? Oh, Eddie's here? Dude, thank you. <laughs> so Susan and Eddie and the other eight people who are in the story, uh, first and foremost, just thank you so much for taking the time to be with the students and open up your lives to them. They didn't have to do that. Nobody has to talk to us. I mean, just because we have a microphone, which is uh, the Kitchen Sisters call a magic stick, uh, just because we have this magic stick, and somehow it is a passport into people's lives. They'll tell you things that they wouldn't tell you if you didn't have the mac microphone. Uh, point being, they don't have to talk to us. You didn't have to talk to David, you know, and you didn't have to talk to Aaron. And I'm always eternally grateful that for the gift that people give us for taking the time to talk to us, regardless of what the story is about. It truly is a gift. And so thank you guys for doing this with students, you know. So thank you very much. Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Oh, you want a mic? Yeah. <laughs> she is. Uh, <laughs> we've been harassing each other like brother and sister all week, I feel like. Um, could you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Rachel Lerman. I am a technology reporter for the Associated Press. Types of stories. I write mostly about, well, I started a new job two weeks ago. So technically, right now, I write mostly about Google and uh, data privacy. What was something that you learned during the week that surprised you? Like, whoa, wait a minute, that's how this gets done? Oh my gosh, logging tape takes forever. Going forever. through the tape and finding the good quotes yes. and typing them out, yeah. So long, and I kind of knew that was gonna be hard because I've, of course, transcribed interviews before, but this was um, harder. Uh, and so hard to cut down into a five-minute piece. Uh, the other thing that really struck me is uh, people tend to act a little bit differently when they have a microphone in their face. I'm used to, I'm used to just having like my pen and paper, which you can kind of like hide, but this is you know like a microphone in your face. So I think that you kind of have to like warm people up a little bit more than I was expecting. How, to get they, them to how are they different? The people that you're talking to. So interview for print, interview for radio. How do the in same interviewees differ? Like what do they do differently? Yeah. Yeah, I think that uh, I think people are a little bit more afraid of the microphone at first, but I do think they relax into it, and I think the idea of having their own voices included in the piece really helps with that. Oh, great. Do you want to introduce yours? I'm sorry I didn't bring you guys donuts. <laughs> hint, hint. <laughs> great. Me Kim opened her small donut shop in Seattle last June. Right from the start, people had ideas for what she should do. Sell more sweets, make espresso, stay open longer. But Mi Kim wasn't having any of it. She knew what she wanted to do, and she stuck to it. That's why last year was my year of no, because everyone was like, you should do this, we should do this, do you want to do this? I'm like, no, 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 I just want to get settled in the store. Her shop is called Raised Donuts. It's a small space, decorated in a modern, upscale style, with just a few tables and chairs. And, of course, a counter for the donuts plain glazed, apple fritters, and maple bars, all perfectly arranged. By 5 a.m., she's already made 400 donuts. 
Every so often, she breaks into one to make sure it's fried perfectly. Sometimes she snags a quick bite. She knows she's got it right when they're just a bit moist. Moist is good. <laughs> she's often alone for this part of the day, frying and glazing hundreds of donuts while most of the city sleeps. But that solitude doesn't last long once the door is open. Hi. Ray's Donuts is located in the Central District. It's just down the block from 23rd and Union. People show up in droves. In fact, she regularly sells out of donuts early. She then lowers the blinds and closes up shop. Some customers don't like that. In the beginning, people were kind of upset when we were run out, but lately it's been more like, oh, good for you. Like, we'll come back, don't worry. Like, not a big deal. But in the beginning, it was like, seriously, you're out already? You know, and it was interesting. So that kind of wore down on me. The donuts that Me Kim makes are smaller than what you'd find in your grocery store, and they're more expensive. The classic donuts, like the plain glazed, start at $2, but the fancier donuts, mochi sugar or raspberry holes, those can be upwards of $3. Some seasonal donuts are like $3.50. Those prices can cause sticker shock. Like this woman who came in the other day. She saw the list of donuts and prices on the wall, and she was not pleased. So she was like, oh, those are expensive. And her... Her daughter was like, Mom, that's rude. <laughs> and then I, they ate them, they ate them, and then she came up and bought six more. So, like, that is, like, really rewarding to me because I'm like, like oh, like, you, I get it, like, totally first glance, you know, it's very different. Even just the size in itself is extremely different from a lot of places. But I've always thought that, like, they don't need to be that big. And you're going to feel super guilty eating a giant donut when you don't need that much. You just want, like, a few bites. None of these gripes phase me, Kim. So what if people have to pay a bit more? So what if the donuts are smaller? So what if she has to buy blinds to let people know, yes, it's 11 a.m. and they're closed? This is her shop, and she's really proud of her handcrafted donuts. She's proud that she can make and sell them by herself. I always want this place to feel like small, not never like a big corporation, because it never will be. I, would, I don't think I'd let it get to be a big, really big ordeal. It's always going to be like pretty tight. Okay, so, um, yeah, I think we should take both of these. All right. And then I also want to try these raspberries. Christina and Kevin Lundin are here for Donuts on a Deadline. The couple is starting a new diet next week, so they need to get their sugar fix in while they can. So is this just you? Yeah, it's me on Mondays and Tuesdays. I have a fryer that comes in on the weekends. But it's just me. I make out myself and then I go home. She does have a business partner and a couple employees who work a few hours a week. But on a day-to-day -day basis, often it's just her, working alone. That's why I like donuts, because it's efficient. I love efficiency. Efficiency, like, It's hard for me to cook with other people at home. I try to be really patient and like just suck it up, because I'm like, at the end of the day, who really freaking cares? You know, It's just time. But uh, I'm just like, no, but like when you cook this, like, it makes so much sense to do this, this, and this, this way. My friends are always like, oh, just stay out of the kitchen when me comes in there. Me Kim got this love for donuts partly from her parents. They used to stop at a gas station on the way to her parents' work. Her and her dad would eat donuts. And he'd always fill up at the same gas station, and they'd always have the same, the donuts. He would always get, like, I think, crullers or pinwheels. And I would, I don't know, I forget. I think I would always get crullers once I, like, found out about them because I, like, loved them. But, yeah, super low-key, but, like, those kind of memories to me are, like, some of the best ones. An older man pulls up in front of the shop. While he walks to the door, Mi Kim guesses what he'll have. A plain glaze, probably. Maybe an apple fritter. He goes for the fritter. You were so right. Always. 
How do you know? Yeah, she's being here like 24-7. <laughs> it's not even noon, and Me Kim is almost sold out. Even for her, that's early for a Tuesday. It's time for the shades. So we sold out, and it's 11.50, and it's crazy because I usually make like the smallest batch on Tuesdays, but I made probably double that today, and we're already sold out. For the Transom Traveling Workshop in Seattle, I'm Rachel Lerman. Any questions for Rachel? Thank you. <laughs> I like him. Wow. Um, uh, lots of help from Rob and Whitney. Uh, I think, so I, I think I have a loud voice, and my narration was a lot louder than her talking. Also, I probably should have mic'd her closer. Um, so I ended up having to use a lot of room tone, which was this one of the most awkward parts of my interview, which is when you just record the natural sound of a room. So I just kind of like sat in front of her and went like this, silently for 60 seconds. She checked her phone, it was okay. Um, but I ended up using a lot of that and putting that in between my narration and her interview so that it went pretty smoothly. Uh, you're supposed to put it really close to their mouth, which can feel sort of awkward because, yeah, you hold it up with your hand. So you like, you know, try to find a place to rest your arm and then you like hold it really close to their mouth. Um, and I, I really thought that I was, but I think I could have been a little bit closer. <laughs> I just liked the alliteration, I think. <laughs> I, they were just, they were very into the fact that they were like, how many times do you think we can come in the next week? They live nearby. They were gonna try to come a lot, so I don't know. Maybe I was also thinking about the fact that I had a deadline to finish the piece. Yeah. Great, thanks much. Thank you. Nicely done. Rach, you're next. Uh, you're supposed to get the mic right like this. So if you're meeting someone for the first time, a stranger, the mic has to be this close, it's pretty, pretty damn uncomfortable. Uh, you have to rearrange furniture to get to sit close to people. It's pretty awkward. But the magic words, I tell the students the magic words are, I just want to make sure you sound good. So as soon as you say that, people are like, yes, I will do whatever you want because I want to sound good. Uh, uh, yeah, so yeah, you have to get wicked close. And I'm from New England, and we don't stand close to people. When we first meet them, we stand far away, and it's always awkward, but yeah. I like that you It's wicked, you have to get wicked close. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you need a microphone, I'm sorry. Speaking of mics. Hi. Hi. How are you? Good. Who are you? I am Rachel Robertson. I work at Oregon State University in Corvallis, Oregon. Um, I work for the College of Engineering. I'm a, a science communicator. So I do writing and video and podcasts. What's the podcast? The podcast is Engineering Out Loud. And what happens on the podcast? Um, we talk to researchers, so the faculty and the students at, um, uh, at the university. And we talk to them about their research or other projects that they're doing. Huh. 
what's something from the workshop that you're going to take to the podcast that you're going to have to what? When's the next one due? Um, actually, the, the rest of the team is working on our next season. And so um, I think it's, I think our first one's coming out like beginning of March for this season. And what are you going to bring to that that you're going to take from the workshop? Um, a lot. I mean, it's it's so there's a lot of like technical things, um, you know, about uh, transitions. I think today you were telling me um, you can um, when you switch between a quote and um, the narration. Um, so if you switch between a quote and the narration, you can leave a little more gap because that's oh. a transition. But if you're going the other direction. So if you're going from uh, narration to quote, that's got to be a tighter transition. And so actually, I, I, I think I have a tendency to, um, to slow the pace down. And what you taught me a lot of it today was um, you know, tightening things up, or yesterday, I guess, um, tightening things that's, up. So. That's all one big, long day, right? <laughs> right. It, yeah. It, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I don't really know what day it is anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's Saturday. It's okay. night, and it's Phew, time for your almost, story. It's almost done. <laughs> yes, <laughs> there's a drink in your future. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do you want to introduce your story, or should we just listen? We can just listen. All right, come have a seat. Oh, I see somebody coming. It's a typical rainy winter day in Seattle. I'm meeting Pat Hansen at her home on North Lake Drive. She's walking her dog Rocco. Here's the dog. Rocco wiggled under the gate as she pushed a wheelbarrow of trash up the walkway. Hello. Oh my goodness. Look at you. Hi. Hi. You can just go right under there, huh? Oh. Picking up garbage is one way neighbors here help each other out, just like any neighborhood. The only difference? Pat's neighborhood is floating. I have lived on this boat or in this lake over half my life. That's kind of that weird, I just thought about that. <laughs> That's why I'm the lady of lake. I'm certainly not the lady of the land because I haven't lived on land for a long, long time. Pat has earned her title lady of the lake. She has lived on Lake Union since 1979. She lives on a boat called the Midnight Sun. The name is an homage to her husband. Buff was Norwegian and he also worked for years on a boat in Alaska. Although living on a boat was Buff's idea, Pat was willing to jump aboard. She had grown up fishing with her dad and always loved the water. Pat and Buff first lived on a houseboat. Then they both fell in love with a 54-foot sailboat. It was rough around the edges, and Pat remembers making a promise to it the first night they slept aboard. Okay, boat, you haven't been really well taken care of but you're ours now, and I'm going to take really good care of you and love you. And it's been that way ever since. Pat warns me to be careful when I climb down the ladder into the living area. She's fallen more than once. I notice the warm honey color of the teak floors and the cabinets. Although the light is bright and cheery, I still feel like I'm descending into a cave-like space. The mast cuts through the center of the boat and makes a gentle noise with the motion of the water. I start to understand why she stayed on the boat for so long. I like the rocking, and, and actually I like the sound of the mast, too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. There's always sounds going on. And in here is the engine room. There are two bedrooms, two toilets, a kitchen, and a dining area. It's comfy but tight. And although she complains about the closet space, Pat sees the tight quarters as a benefit. What's not to like? It's cozy. 
it's warm. Everything is right there. I'm at the galley, I've got the sink right there, one step down, there's the stove, I turn around, there's the microwave. Anytime it's more than two steps from the edge of the bed till your butt's on the toilet is a total waste of space. And in this boat, there's no wasted space. Over the years, they would take the boat out to places like the San Juan Islands in Washington and Desolation Sound in British Columbia. Their grandkids called them Grandma and Grandpa Duck. The boat was their life, but they were both getting older and were ready to move back to land. We got along better when we were building something, always. Fought like crazy when we didn't have a project. We decided we wanted to build a house, so we found a lot uh, down in Alderbrook and a beautiful lot, and this is like 2005, and economy was going well, both of us were working, found a builder, found the plans, started the, started the process. But things suddenly changed for Pat and Buff. 2006, he collapsed at work, found out he had colon cancer. And in, in the beginning, things looked good. Well, it was stage four, and it wasn't good. They continued to work on the house, and Buff got to see it all framed in. Four days later, Buff passed away. It was a tough time. I didn't have enough time. I did a lot of grieving while he was so sick, um, but I didn't have much grieving afterward. I didn't have time to sit, although I did sit right over there on that couch and I'd have what I called the ugly cries. And I'd have a drink in my hand, and I would just cry. And I would talk to him. Not the fact that, oh, I loved you and I missed you. We'd been married too long. But I'm so sorry you had to go through it all. Pat was on her own now, but she found a way to finish their dream home. The house was beautiful, got it all done, everything was great. In, and moved in all the furniture in um, late 2008. And then the stock market crashed. Lost half of my retirement immediately. And then she lost the house. Fortunately, she still had a place to live. So anyway, here I am on, on the boat, and that's why I stayed here. And the best thing that ever happened. See, you always look for the benefit. <laughs> and I'm here. I could have talked to Pat for hours. Well, actually, I did. There's more to her life than the boat. She worked in IT, she's a great-grandmother, and yet what struck me the most was her ability to see life as an adventure and to find the benefit in any situation. And I just walked down the dock, and I look back at the city of Seattle, and I thought, oh, my God, I've got the best place in the whole world. Yeah, I really do, yeah. For KUOW and the Transom Traveling Workshop in Seattle, this is Rachel Robertson. Great. Well, you can't go anywhere. I, I know. I'm just hoping that. Okay. Uh, questions for Rachel? Have you uh, been on sailboats before? Have I been on sailboats before? Um, not not a boat that size. So I had been on a sailboat before, but yeah, I'm not really a boater. I didn't know all the terminology, so she was teaching me. Yes. Does it make you want to live on a boat? No. 
It was nice, though. And one thing that I, I wanted to put in the story that I didn't, um, so there's two bedrooms. Um, you know, her bedroom is, is um, a little bit bigger. And then the, the second bedroom, the guest bedroom, is basically, it's only a bed. So you walk in, and there's only enough room to, like, get into the bed. And she told me, um, her son calls that room the coma room because you just like, you just go in there and you are out and you just sleep forever. And I was like, that sounds really good. <laughs> so maybe going tonight. Yeah, right. Yeah. Maybe for a weekend. <laughs> there was yeah. a question over here. Oh, thank you. Yeah, 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 and I—I I mean, that's—I um, re—that's the the best part of my job is I get to talk to people all the time. I just find other people are really interesting, and and um, yeah, so we did connect, and that—that's really the fun part of it, for me, is getting a chance to talk to the people, but then also, you know, being able to share it with all of you. I have a weird question for you. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was just thinking about your story this way for the very first time. There's a moment in the piece where she talks about the sounds down there. Mm -hmm. And then you bring up the sound of, what is it, the halyard? The rope that's hitting the mast on the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. the mast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it just sort of lingers there for a bit. And then two or three, maybe four times more throughout the piece, that's there. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, here comes the weird part, I feel like it starts to accrue meaning. Like the sound starts to gather in meaning, and it's a real it's a real sound arty sort of way to produce a piece where a sound gets introduced. You're not quite sure what you're supposed to do with it. It's there, but as the piece moves on, the sound changes. It changes its meaning, and you come to understand it in a different way by the end. Were you by chance thinking of that when you were producing the piece? Say yes. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. I mean, well, I mean, I, I felt like the sound was important. And actually, um, initially, we did the interview in a quiet space because you had harped on us about getting, you know, finding yeah. a quiet space. And I really didn't like the quiet space. And fortunately, maybe um, my, my, somehow my recorder stopped like 15 minutes into the interview. And we, we ended up moving back onto the boat. And I actually feel like that was better. Because you, it, like throughout the whole interview, you could hear that sound, and I, you can't hear it as well here. But if you listen on headphones, you can you can really hear that. Yeah. And it's almost like a, I mean, it is. It's kind of like a beat to the whole thing. And so I think it really did add something. And I'm I'm glad in a way that the somehow I uh, stopped the recorder after 15 minutes of yeah. the interview in the quiet space. So <laughs> great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, maybe one more. Oh. Yes. Oh yeah, it was definitely intentional because I mean, obviously, you know, when you're when you're doing radio, people can't see what you're seeing, and so, um, and that's actually one of the things that we talked about too is is you know to help, um, you know, sort sort of create a vision so other people can see what you're seeing. Great, thanks. Geisha, couple more stories. You good? Great. Hi. Uh, someone earlier asked about why radio instead of film, right? 
Did I ask that question? Did you ask? Oh, no, it was you. Sorry. Um, I, I wanted to throw out an answer. Um, I, hopefully, my class will laugh. It's a little woo-woo. Uh, but do you know what I mean by woo-woo? It's kind of highfalutin, ethereal. There's no real proof to it. it seems kind of new agey. Um, uh, and here's, here's what I think. I kind of, I, I feel like when you're making a radio story, you're possibly playing with fire. And the reason I think that is this. Think about how long we've been communicating in sound with one another, like forever, right? Uh, before the internet, before uh, uh, you know, television, before radio, before printed word, right? Before cave paintings, we've been talking to each other or communicating anyway with with each other in sound. Like just it's, and so I want to believe here comes the woo woo part that is essential to who we are as critters. Like it's just, it's built into us. It's part of what it means to be human is to communicate and sound with one another. And so by, by paring down everything and just making radio, and by radio I mean podcasts and everything else too, by, by telling a story in sound, you're tapping into that essential thing that makes us human beings. And that's why I think it's, I'm going to say it, it's better than film. Or at least I feel that way. Uh, uh, and so that's what, why radio and podcasting and audio storytelling as a whole it means so much to me, is it just seems kind of primal. So, questions? <laughs> When you listen to things? Yeah, yeah. especially when there's like that aha moment, like that's the thesis of the story, you know, to put it in more academic terms. But yeah. it's, it's just like the jam of the story is exposed. So it feels really intimate. Yeah. Yay. Good. Um, hi. Hey, Rob. How are you doing? I'm like super nervous yes. and super exhausted. Yeah. Like we'll, really we'll be quick then. Okay. Who great. are you? I'm Daisha Clay. And where are you from? Um, so I am new to Seattle. I've been here for a little over a year. And I'm originally from Houston, Texas, uh, where I worked at Houston Public Media. And now I work at uh, Classical King FM, where I'm the assistant program director. And uh, it's kind of a weird title because it means not a whole lot, but I make a podcast. And uh, I host a podcast weekly called The Classical Classroom, uh, which is all about how I don't know anything about classical music, so I have people on to teach me about it. And I'm helping launch other podcasts that are doing so. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Something that you would want to tell people about making radio that would surprise them? Oh, man. So much. This week has been so full of stuff. It's like, I think what was most surprising to me well, oh, you know, one thing about radio that's really surprising is how often people try to get you to do live things in front of audiences. <laughs> but all you want to do is hide behind a microphone. Um, <clears throat> but, the, no, like, uh, something that I had a really difficult time with this week was, um, you know, I had all this tape, and in that tape there were all of these stories, and I had to pick one and, and go with it, and that was really like psychologically and emotionally difficult to do, like to kill your darlings, as Whitney said. Um, that was hard. It was really, I, I want to go back through the tape and make all the other stories mm. now. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I think I said in class, the stories need to be short so you guys feel the pain of making choices. Yeah. When it's like you're shaping 
you're just, you, that tape is just like a chunk of reality, right? Like you're just going out and you're having this conversation with somebody and you're, you kind of have this idea of a story in mind, but really, like, you, it's just like a slice of reality happening and then you are kind of shaping that into a story, which is what we all do all the time, which is maybe kind of getting back to what you were talking about, how it's kind of this primal thing that we just do. Let's listen. Yeah. I'm telling you, Harriet, we should pack up the entire Gooey Duck Publishing Company and move to Antarctica. That Wizard of Oz voice belongs to Mr. Gooey Duck, editor of the Gooey Duck Publishing Company. He's bellowing at his assistant behind a curtain, and a third grade class from Rainier Elementary is listening, riveted. They're here for what they were led to believe is a field trip. In front of the class stands Brian Wilson. Mr. Gooey Duck, with all due respect, as cool as Antarctica sounds, we just think there are so many stories to tell right here in Seattle. Brian's mission, to get these students to write stories to keep Gooey Duck publishing in Seattle. What do you say, authors? Can we do this? Yes! yes! All right, you heard him, Mr. Gooey Duck. We're going to give it a best shot. And with that, the students are off and writing. Welcome to Tuesday at the Bureau of Fearless Ideas. The Bureau, or BFI, is a nonprofit writing and tutoring center for kids from first through 12th grade. They offer free after-school programs and field trips like this one. From the moment you enter the building, you become part of the narrative too. Even my recording gear and I were given a part. Hi there, I'm from the Fearless Times, wondering if I can listen in while you guys write. The room where this all goes down is big and open. There's a giant silhouette of David Bowie above something labeled Atomic Teleporter. There's a chalkboard wall with paintings of the planets on it. And there's a small stage where Brian, the program manager, leads the class. Give me your card, see you one more time, please. Okay, uh, let's take a deep breath together, too. BFI has three guiding principles. Be creative and be kind and be fearless. Brian believes that those principles are incredibly important, especially these days. We have a lot of a lot of problems that we're facing as a society. Uh, we're in a world that's awash in communities that don't necessarily talk to each other. BFI wants to change that by teaching the skills of writing and creativity to people early in their lives. This place sees writing not necessarily as this solitary act, but as, as an act of community. I think to some degree we haven't done a great job of having school see us. That's Erica Mullins, executive director of BFI. She says that the Bureau is working to improve BFI's relationship with schools. They want to reach as many kids as possible, especially in underserved areas. They just opened a new satellite office in the basement of a subsidized housing building in Yesler Terrace. And their approach is working. Even though gentrification is driving families out of the city, Erica says they're still bringing their kids to BFI. And over the last 10 years, many families have um, needed to move out of the city of Seattle, and they're still coming. So families are driving from Shoreline and Linwood two days a week so that their young people can still be connected in this community, um, which is amazing. What's your name? Avila. Back in the writing room, the young authors are working away, doing their level best to prove that Seattle is still a place with good ideas. I checked in with one of them. But before they could finish, a huge alien rocket ship crashed with deafening impact into the middle of the field. Avila and the other students hand in their stories for Mr. Gooey Duck to review. Soon, they'll find out if their hard work has paid off. Well, well, I don't need to move Gooey Duck Publishing to the Antarctica at all anymore. That's it. We're staying here. Gooey Duck Publishing is staying in Seattle. They've won, and it seems the Bureau of Fearless Ideas is winning too. 
I think 75-year-old Jane Warner, who's been volunteering at the Bureau for five years, put it best. Everybody that's here wants to be here. You look around and everybody's happy. From the Transom Traveling Workshop at KUOW and apparently the Fearless Times, I'm Daisha Clay. Uh, questions for Daisha? Well, um, full disclosure, I have volunteered a couple of times at the Bureau, so I was kind of used to the, the setting. And the kids are just like, them giving me the role as a reporter to explain my presence really helped. They were just like, oh, OK, cool, you're a reporter. I, I'll talk to you. And it was, it was fine, yeah. Yeah, they're very like open. Oh my gosh, there, I don't know if there was a formula. It kind of just, we, like we workshopped it back and forth and. Uh, like it's going to the and it's like. Oh, yeah. Isn't he though? I'm like, yeah, I mean, we did a lot of that kind of talking. We also, um, you know, we would spend time in different groups editing, uh, we, you know, I got Rob's input, I got Whitney's input. Uh, I went home and like meditated on it myself and asked myself like, what's the story really about? It, you know, and, and then it just kind of got, it got shaped and chiseled away at until it became that. One oh, more. Thanks. <laughs> Totally, which is why radio and what we're doing right here is so important. Like um, the the Bureau of Fearless Ideas is like, that's what they're all about. And I think it's, what's interesting to me when I talk to them, I expected them to, to be, you know, opposed to like STEM education or something like that. And they were like, no, 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 like that's, that's really important too. But we've gotta have this, we've gotta have creativity, we've gotta have, um, you know, people um, caring about things and and um, getting kids to feel like creativity and storytelling is important. It helps them to collaborate. It helps them to build community. And yeah. So that's yeah. That's what they're all about. Great. Thanks. Hi. Hey, so I, um, I think I mentioned earlier that I teach workshops on Cape Cod. They're nine weeks long, uh, and then I, uh, twice a year, spring and fall, and then I do one-week workshops around the country. And so, for instance, last summer, I was, where was I? I was in Boston, I was in Interlock in Michigan, I was in Big Sky, Montana, Marfa, Texas, and Catalina Island off the coast of, uh, of Los Angeles. And so, last couple weeks ago, I was in Nashville, uh, I'm here right now, I think, and uh, I'm going to Santa Fe uh, in a few days to teach another workshop. And I just want to say something. I'd, we'd never done a workshop here at KOW, and when we called up 
uh, one of the staff members there and, and who had said, you know, if you ever think about wanting to do one, you should do it. So I called Jim up and, and he said, yeah, let's do it. And like an army, like a team, like it's unbelievable the support that KOW has been providing us. Everything from how to get in and out of the building uh, to this event tonight, um, which Kristen helped put together. Uh, I just, like KOW, you guys are lucky to have KOW in your lives here in, in Seattle. <laughs> And uh, we were lucky to have you in the class. Hi, who Hi, are you? Hi, I'm Kristen Leong. I am KUAW's community engagement producer. And what does that mean? Uh, it means I help put on events like this. It means <laughs> I think my job is to make sure that the news is two-dimensional, right? So that KUW, that you're not just listening to the news, but that our audience is actually a part of making it and interacting with us. Um, but I have never actually made any radio until this week, so. This so were you forced to take this workshop or did you choose to? I was invited. I feel, you know what, I just wanna give, <laughs> I just wanna, I wanna give a shout out to workplaces that like really see and embrace their staff and, and see people and go like, you, like, you can do hard things. And I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I have no, I'm okay. And then, you know, here we are. And actually throughout the week, um, Transom is a roller coaster of emotion throughout the week. And so I think there was times like Tuesday, Wednesday, where I was like walking around dazed and I would run into my colleagues who are like talented journalists and producers. And they'd be like, how's it going? You hanging in there? And in my mind, I would think to myself like, just be cool, you know, like pretend like you know what you're doing. Like this is where I work, like act like you're a professional person. But then as I was thinking that like, what blurted out of my mouth was like, I'm actually just really overwhelmed. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I don't know how you guys do this. And then everyone would just be like, you got this, you got this. And so um, I feel super grateful uh, to be here and to be with KUOW and to, to have been invited to participate this week. It's been a big one. Sweet. <laughs> yeah. We should listen to your story, right? Yes. You're gonna take us out. Yes, thank Anything you. Anything you wanna say about it? Um, I just want to say, I was so excited to interview Joe. Uh, I felt so close to his story. I'm also bicultural, I'm, I'm biracial. I'm also a former teacher like Joe. And so I felt like this is gonna be really easy. Like I got this, you know, and he's a musician. So he, I was like, he's gonna have like beautiful music to put under, like this is gonna be no problem. But um, I actually think my closeness to his story made it more challenging, but also, more satisfying to to be here and to have this final piece done. So I hope that I hope that it makes Joe Kai proud is actually what I hope. Cool. Yeah. For Joe Kai, music was always in the background. He sang in an a cappella group as an undergrad. He wrote songs between his classes while he was a teacher. Even as a baby in South Korea, he was tuned into the music around him. My first memories are in Korean. Um, my first memory is being on my mom's back uh, and listening to her lullabies with my ear pressed against her shoulder blades. So kind of hearing through the muffling, the warm muffling of her body, um, the different Korean folk songs and lullabies. When Joe was six years old, he and his family immigrated to the United States. His father got a job at the University of Washington as a teacher's assistant and Joe accepted his role as the dutiful firstborn son. Eventually, Joe went to college and then became a teacher. 
And although his career didn't come with the status his parents had hoped for, teaching did provide security he didn't have growing up. Within two years of moving from Seoul, Joe's parents had burned through their savings. They lived in the basement of a fellow church member. We had about a month of eating Big Macs because um, they were 99 cents. Um, no fries. That's wasteful. Uh, and certainly no Happy Meals. Yes. <laughs> this is all I can do uh, is just laugh at it and talk to my therapist about it. But Joe's not just laughing and talking to his therapist. He's also telling the world. Today, Joe is a professional performer and storyteller. I sit all alone in a heap as I wait by the Joe's live shows feel warm and candid, like you're just hanging out with an old friend who happens to have his violin with him. He sings about love and family and candlelit dinners of spam and ketchup. Mixed in between his songs, he tells stories about his life. Like the time he was interviewing for a board position, it was for a youth orchestra in Portland, Oregon. And in my board interview, uh, one of the board members, we were about halfway in through the interview, we're joking about this and that, oh, we're sharing our passions. Uh, and then he says, wow, you speak really good English. <laughs> and I'm like, great, so do you. <laughs> Joe was a high school English teacher for four years. As an undergrad at Yale University, his major was American studies. But here's the thing. Joe gets tagged as an outsider in Korea, too. He told me a story about shopping there with his mom. Although he hadn't said a word, the Korean shopkeeper nodded to Joe and asked his mom where he was from. The shopkeeper could tell. Joe wasn't one of them. That's the problem with being bicultural, right, is that you feel like an imposter in both worlds. Like his Korean-American identity, Joe's music is also layered, literally. He uses a looping pedal to create multiple tracks with his voice and violin in real time. In any one song, he might go from jazz to acapella to hip hop. He's like a one-man, multicultural band. I would say that I'm welcomed in very few purist circles, <laughs> um, which is really my curse. Candlelit dinners filled with spam and ketchup to the neighbor. Little he knows about the world he left behind receiver. Hang up the phone. I asked Joe why he loops, why he doesn't just hire a band. He told me he thinks a lot about what looping represents. Yeah, it's a way for me to, I think, express myself in totality. Yeah, so to accurately capture some of the tension that exists within myself. Grandma's house she loved but never knew she had a daughter. If only you could By 2013, part of Joe's internal tension was at its breaking point. He had to finally see if he could make a life out of doing what he loves. His mom was not on board. At the end of four years of teaching to say, I'm gonna do music. I, I remember saying that to her and um, she just glared back at me and said, then why did you go to Yale? Even without his mom's support, Joe took the leap. Three years later, Joe was in front of nearly 20,000 people warming up the crowd for then-presidential hopeful Bernie Sanders. He's open for cellist Yo-Yo Ma as well as rapper Warren G. And after he performed at TEDx Seattle, the crowd filling McCall Hall stood up and cheered. What that means is that these days, Joe spends a lot of time with his story. And during his live shows, you can feel it. That tension, Joe's totality, it hums through the room like electricity. Before he goes on stage, he meditates. I try to get into this space of, for me, true joy, which I think is just adjacent to suffering. 
this place where you want to cry and laugh at the same time. I think without that suffering, without sense of that sense of suffering, you, you don't really know what joy is. Joe's most requested song exactly captures this contrast. It opens with Joe strumming his violin like a ukulele. Although the song is called Happy Song, the lyrics tell a different story. Happy Song tends to make the audience cry. Joe said those are his on-fire moments, glorious and beautiful. When I can really touch someone and share in that emotion together, that co-misery, as well as at the end of the, of the song, there's a huge upwelling of strings that to me is synonymous with this joy, this kind of overflowing joy that bubbles up. So when I can get into that space, that tiny little crevice between joy and suffering, and spend some time there with all the people that are listening to it, yeah, that's, that's what I live for. For KUOW and Transom Traveling Workshop in Seattle, I'm Kristen Leong. Questions for uh, Kristen? Oh, come now, we've had them all night. So did I worry about mistelling his story? Yeah, I feel like when you, it's not just the hour that you spend interviewing this person, right? It's all the hours that you spend preparing for the interview, then it's all the hours you spend with that interview as you're editing the tape, so you feel so close with this person, um, and you want to do their story justice, and you want to tell it in a way that isn't um, melodramatic. Right, like the story itself is powerful. So how do we, even in the narration, um, I was telling Rob, like um, even just in the narration, I wanted to make sure, like just let his story speak for himself. Like there, I don't need to lean into this or, or slow down here. Like Joe's story, his own words do that. And so like seeing yourself as the narrator as just like stitching together his brilliant quotes, you know? And the thing with interviewing somebody like Joe, the thing with choosing someone who has a really dynamic story is that you have a tape filled with so much great stuff, right? And it's absolutely, it's so hard just to choose, um, to choose here and there, um, but trying to make sure that what you do choose gives a full picture of this very three-dimensional person. It's a good problem to have. Robert Krowich from Radiolab talks about the cringe test. And the cringe test is that you should be able to sit in a room with the person you did a story on and, and not cringe uh, because you can support all of the choices that you've made. It's not that you wouldn't put things in the story that might reveal blemishes 
or contradictions or, or things about someone that just don't add up, uh, or maybe things about someone who, that, like, they're just not likable, you might put those in. And you could cringe about that, but you should be able to support those decisions and have good reasons and justifications behind them. So I feel like all these guys passed the cringe test. And I, I think I saw one other hand. Did I see another hand? Oh, way in the back. So the question is that I, that I did feel a kinship with Joe's story, and so did this process bring up my own kind of reflection on my own identity? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the thing that, um, as I was interviewing Joe, he kept like assuring me that like, this was really hard, but now I'm really, now I'm really good. Now I'm really like, in a good place, and I'm like a musician full time, and I have like come to terms with my Korean American identity. And, like now I'm solid. But as we're doing the interview, as I think you can hear in the story, like this is an ongoing process. This is still in progress, and I think like I really, really felt that, you know, as a person who is. Um, also bicultural, also biracial, like continuing to kind of figure out who I am forever. And I'm like, yeah, I relate to that, but like, don't we all? Like, who's, who's good? Who's like, I got it all figured out, pretty solid. This is how I'm gonna be in 10 more years, 20 more years, 30 more, like, we're all doing that. That's like the most human thing about us. And I think like great storytelling, like great radio, like that kind of piece comes through all of these stories. Like all of these people that were interviewed are a work in progress. Super. Stay here for a second. Um, could all of this, oh, sorry, over here. Um, compliment and thank you. Um, first, I'm particularly inspired by um, Gabby's Chinese Swedish. Cool. Yeah. Um, so I come away to those stories. Oh, you speak English, that's great. <laughs> Can I have all the students come up here for a moment? Didn't they do great? And Whitney, Whitney, can you come up? Uh, here they are, Transom Traveling Workshop, Seattle. Oh, nope, we're not here all yet. Uh, 2019, big round of applause if you would please. You did that all in one week. And you were steadfast and dedicated to the craft, and you just wanted to do your best, and I can't thank you enough. So thanks very much for doing this. Really. Thank you to both of you. Thanks to the collective and KOW, and thank you all, you radio nerds, for coming out tonight. It's good to see you. Ciao. Thank you.